In the summer of 2015, a man we'll call Vincent received one of the worst emails of his life. He was being blackmailed by an anonymous sender calling himself Mr. X. Vincent had created a profile on AshleyMadison.com, a dating site for married people looking for affairs. During his first few weeks on the site, he messaged other straying spouses, but he never arranged any in-person meetings. He never physically cheated on his wife. It didn't matter. His profile would be incriminating enough if it ever got out. And it did. On August 18, 2015, hackers released the names of every Ashley Madison user, plus their credit card information. People all across the world could search the data and see if their partners were using the service. Vincent was lucky. He found out about the leak, and his wife hadn't. Yet. But Mr. X knew, and the blackmailer was threatening to share the incriminating evidence with Vincent's wife, unless Vincent paid $1,000 in an untraceable cryptocurrency called Bitcoin. Vincent had to make a choice. Pay off Mr. X, potentially opening himself up to more future extortion, or suffer the consequences when his digital secrets went public. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. We're exploring how we share our digital identities and who controls our data. Today, we're asking who owns our personal digital information. We'll look at the ways data can be manipulated and explore the tactics cybercriminals use to steal from you. Finally, we'll examine the reason some online users break digital codes for fun. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your financial records your email and calendar, social media messages and dating app profiles, medical information, 
Like we covered last time, so much of your private data is online. Even if you want to keep your personal life private, it's almost impossible to avoid some kind of internet presence. Many websites track your habits and build extensive metadata profiles, so much so that some companies may know you better than you know yourself. Scarier still, strangers who gain access to that data can familiarize themselves with your personal information and use it against you. More than ever, we're all susceptible to cybercrime. In the United States, 60 million people are hacked every year. Businesses fall prey to ransomware attacks once every 11 seconds. Experts predict that by next year, cyber criminals will have access to 33 billion records. That's more than four pieces of data for every person in the world. The stakes are high, and unfortunately, the cybersecurity measures you're taking may not be enough to keep you safe. Since the dawn of the digital age, every time someone has come up with a way to protect data, someone else has figured out a trick to bypass their system. To the best of our knowledge, the first computer passwords were implemented in the early 1960s, and they weren't designed to protect sensitive information. That was an accidental side effect. Passwords were meant to track users. At the time, Massachusetts Institute of Technology owned a computer system called the CTSS. The problem? There were a limited number of devices that could access the system, and many students were working with it. The school had to limit each individual's access to a few hours a week to make sure everyone had a chance to use it. MIT assigned every student a password. Each time someone logged on, the system would track how long they spent on the system. When their allotted time was up, they'd be automatically logged out. This posed a problem for a PhD researcher named Alan Schur. He was working on a project that required a lot more time than the login system allowed. So in 1962, shortly after the passwords were implemented, he found a workaround. The CTSS system allowed anyone to submit a request to print any files stored on the computer, even the file where all the usernames and passwords were saved. Sure printed several copies of the list. He kept one, and when his credentials expired each day, he'd simply log in with someone else's information and use their time. He distributed the other copies to a few trusted friends. If he wasn't the only one, he figured it'd be harder for his teachers to track the hack back to him. His cover-up worked. MIT never caught on. The only reason we know his story is because he admitted to the hack 25 years later in 1987. And it may not have mattered if he'd confessed earlier. Shortly after he stole the logins, MIT had a bigger breach on their hands. Whenever students logged into the CTSS system, they were supposed to be greeted with a welcome message. But in 1966, Four years after Scher stole the credentials, a glitch made different information appear. The full contents of the master passwords file. Everyone had access to everybody else's credentials. They didn't even have to go looking for them. So passwords weren't enough to protect the user's private information that was stored on the machine. 
Network admins needed to ensure that even if someone viewed their data, they wouldn't understand it. Which is why they began using encryption. Think of encryption like a secret language only a few individuals know. If you translate your information into that language, you can prevent people from understanding what you're saying. Especially because in some cases, only two people in the whole world know how to translate the encryption the sender, and the recipient. Encryption ensures that even if an unintended recipient opens a file they're not supposed to read, like Sure did with a login document, or if a glitch displays private information, the sensitive data is still safe. Two early digital security tools were called hashing and salting. Hashing refers to a process where computers store letters and numbers as different characters. They're intentionally complicated. But to use an oversimplified example, let's say the letter A gets hashed as the number one, since it's the first letter in the alphabet. B would be two, and so on. If your password is apples, the computer would save it as 1, 16, 16, 12, 5, 19. In other words, it would look like nonsense to your average user, and hackers will have a harder time guessing your real password, especially if the characters don't have an easy-to-discern key, like their number placement in the alphabet. But they can still figure out a few details. Cyber criminals will know how many characters long your password is, and they can see when letters repeat, like how the two P's in apples appear as two 16's in a row. If your password is something obvious, like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, a hacker might be able to guess it just by looking at the hash. And even if you don't use a simple password, cyber criminals can still use a tactic called brute forcing. This is where users keep guessing your password until eventually they land on the right combination. It's time-consuming, but tech-savvy programmers can write programs that attempt trillions of passwords in under a minute. Let's imagine a cybercriminal breaks into your email provider's credentials file. They'll see your hashed password is, say, seven digits long. They could have a program attempt to log in with every seven-letter word in the dictionary. Then they'll attempt six-letter words with a number at the beginning or the end, five-letter words with two numbers, and so on. It could take days, weeks, months, or years. But eventually, if they don't give up, the hacker will get through. That's where salting comes in. This is a process where computers add random numbers and letters to the encrypted password, like sprinkling salt on a meal. Your six-character password of apples might look eight or ten or twelve characters long when it's salted. Hackers won't know which letters and numbers are real and which were added at the salting stage. So they'll have a much harder time guessing the real credentials. And brute force attacks can take much longer because they won't know how many characters to use. Of course, in the 1960s, programmers weren't worried about scammers. At that point, the only notable data breaches in history were because of a software glitch and an overeager PhD student. Tools like salting and hashing were supposed to protect against accidents and pranks, not malicious hackers. Just like how passwords were for user tracking, not protection. 
This was, in part, because digital crime hadn't really come into existence yet, and the world's first major malware attack happened by accident. In the summer and fall of 1988, a 23-year-old Cornell University grad student named Robert Tappan Morris designed the first computer worm. A worm is similar to a computer virus, except you need to give a virus permission to run, usually when you mistakenly think you're installing a legitimate program. However, computer worms can start attacking your computer without your approval. Morris wasn't a cyber criminal. He wrote his program, later dubbed the Morris Worm, as an experiment. He wanted to see if he could make software that replicated and spread itself without human intervention. But he knew the Morris Worm could get him in trouble. So he didn't develop it on a computer that could be easily traced back to him. He hacked into a device at MIT, and eventually his experiment got out of hand. On November 2nd, 1988, around 8.30 p.m., the worm somehow escaped his machine. It spread across the internet, infecting devices at UC Berkeley, Harvard, and even NASA. By the end of the next day, it reached 10% of all the internet-enabled devices in the world. Unlike modern malware, the Morris worm didn't damage computers or the data stored on them but it did make them run slowly. In some cases, it took days to send a simple email. And since some of the affected devices were affiliated with the military, the attack actually inhibited operations at the Pentagon. Eventually, network admins across the country figured out how to remove the worm. But by that point, it had dealt a serious blow to the U.S. economy. Modest estimates suggest it caused $100,000 worth of damage, or more than $230,000 in 2022. And some put the figure much higher, in the millions. The FBI determined Morris had broken the 1986 Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. He was the first person ever convicted under that law, but ultimately, he only had to pay a fine and perform 400 hours of community service. It probably helped that Morris claimed he didn't mean to hurt anyone with his program. But accident or not, the Morris worm demonstrated how susceptible network devices can be to a malware attack. And tech-savvy criminals all across the globe sat up and took notice. The era of cybercrime began. Coming up, how hackers try to steal your data. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. 
follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Now back to the story. The 1988 Morris Worm attack demonstrated the importance of cybersecurity. And as more people started using personal computers, criminals began using the internet to scam people. Meanwhile, as we discussed last time, white hat hackers scrambled to make the web safer. This meant coming up with new, stronger encryption systems. Many devices already used salting and hashing, but neither method was foolproof. Programmers needed new ways to encode information, and they drew inspiration from ancient cryptographers. Cryptography is the term for encoding and decoding hidden messages. Digital encryption is a kind of cryptography, but there are other practices that have been around for somewhere to the tune of 5,000 years. Early cryptography included substitution ciphers, which are similar to hashing. Ancient Egyptian artists would swap out hieroglyphics to make it harder for readers to discern the real meaning in their texts. 1,500 years later, ancient Spartans used a system called Sitali. Messengers wrapped a narrow piece of papyrus around a staff or stick, like wrapping a bandage around a sprained ankle. Once the papyrus was secure, they wrote the secret text. Some words sprawled across multiple layers of the wrapping, so when someone unspooled the papyrus, the page looked like a random string of letters. But if the recipient wrapped it back around a stick that was the right size, the text would line up and they could read the correspondence. This was an effective cipher, because even if someone intercepted the papyrus and knew how it had been encoded, they'd have a hard time deciphering it. But over time, cryptographers found ways to disguise the fact that a message was encoded. At the turn of the 16th century, an abbot named Johannes Trithemius invented a new code that didn't look like a cipher, at least not at first glance. His work was so complicated, he was accused of black magic, and his books were banned. This widespread condemnation meant it took centuries for codebreakers to start unlocking his secret messages. It's hard to say when, but at some point, even musicians realized they could hide messages within melodies. The musical scale has seven unique notes, usually designated with the letters A through G. 
You could play any word or phrase on a piano, provided it uses the first seven letters of the alphabet. For example, the clause, a bad egg, sounds like this. Of course, if you want to send a message that uses the full alphabet, you'd need a more complicated method. Some cryptographers use a tool called a one-time-use code. This is a substitution cipher, but the key changes at a random interval with every letter. So for the first letter, A might equal 1. But for the second letter, A could be 14. For the third, A may be 6 or 20 or anything, really. One-time-use codes are mathematically unbreakable. You can only solve them with the key, which ideally you only use once. This is notable because until 1945, cryptographers weren't even sure if it was possible to make an unbreakable code. A mathematician named Claude E. Shannon calculated the formula that proved one-time pads were secure. That's not Shannon's only contribution to digital information. He also basically invented binary coding. See, when computers communicate with each other, they don't use words and phrases like we do. All their data is converted into a series of ones and zeros. Binary codes paved the way for computers to send complicated messages quickly and efficiently. They made the internet possible. And that's true of many ciphers. Often, data is encoded not for security, but to account for technology's limitations. Take Morse code, for example. In 1837, inventor Samuel Morse debuted a new device, a telegraph machine. It was a precursor to the telephone, but you couldn't talk over a telegraph line. You had to send and receive electric pulses. Some were short and some were long. Morse realized different combinations of long and short beeps could correspond to specific letters and numbers. This code, Morse code, made telegraphy possible. Today, we have digital forms of communication like email, Zoom, and social media platforms. We don't need telegraph machines to communicate with one another. But amateur radio aficionados still broadcast messages in Morse code, and naval intelligence officers are required to learn it. But there's a lot more to cybersecurity than codes and ciphers. And unfortunately, the strongest encryption will only offer you so much protection. Users often fall prey to a tactic called social engineering. This happens when hackers trick people into sharing their private information. They don't need to decipher your encrypted data at all because you're handing it over to them willingly. For example, a cyber criminal might use a tactic called phishing. This means they send you an email that looks like it's from a website you use and trust, like a social media network or your bank. The email might say there's some kind of problem with your account, and you need to click a link and log in to fix it. But the link won't take you to a real login portal. It'll be a fake website that just looks like the Twitter, Facebook, or Wells Fargo homepage. When you enter your username and password, they're sent straight to the hacker. Social engineering doesn't only happen over email. You might get a friend request on social media that looks like it's from someone you know. 
but it's actually a cyber criminal impersonating them. Even savvy users can fall prey to social engineering. In the spring of 2016, just about six months before Election Day, a staffer on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign opened an email. It seemed to be from Google, and it contained a warning that her password wasn't secure. She clicked the link to reset her credentials and typed in her current password. But she didn't actually change her Google password. She unknowingly sent it to a Russian hacking group called Fancy Bear, which had ties to the Kremlin. They set up the fake email and the fake credential site. And now they had her real password. Fancy Bear's operatives accessed the staffer's contact list, then sent the same faux Google email to high-ranking members of the Clinton campaign team. They even contacted some political advisors on their personal accounts. As more staffers fell prey to the social engineering scam, the hackers got even more information. Later, Fancy Bear released their stolen data on WikiLeaks. The dump included information suggesting the Democratic National Convention preferred Hillary Clinton to her competitor Bernie Sanders and speeches Clinton gave to her backers behind closed doors, complete with commentary that wasn't meant for the general public. All in all, it made Clinton look pretty bad. Did the leak make her lose the 2016 election? It's impossible to say, but it undeniably had an impact. Which means social engineering might make it possible for foreign governments to interfere in a rival nation's elections. But for the sake of argument, let's say you're especially computer savvy. You know how to spot fake emails, you never share your password with anyone, and you have the best encryption protocols in place. You might think you're safe from hackers, but you're not. You likely own devices that aren't secure, which you'd never even think of as vulnerable. Serious cybersecurity incidents have happened because unauthorized users access DVR players and wireless keyboards. Even smart toasters and refrigerators can be hacked. On top of that, your online information is vulnerable on two fronts, through you and through the website that stores your data. If a social media network, online shopping portal, or streaming service gets hacked, cyber criminals might find your information there. Meaning, criminals don't have to hack you to access your data. That's how Mr. X had enough data to blackmail Vincent after the Ashley Madison leak. Ultimately, Vincent chose not to pay. He confessed to his wife. She was upset, but she agreed to work on their marriage. Afterward, the pair began couples counseling. Vincent's story had a happier ending than several other Ashley Madison users. Many lost their spouses, had their reputations ruined, and faced professional consequences. At least one clergyman took his own life when he realized his infidelity was about to be exposed. They were all victims of cybercrime, but they didn't get much sympathy. In fact, many people mocked the Ashley Madison users. Some framed the hack as karmic justice, cheaters getting their due. But that's not entirely fair. Victim blaming aside, you can be exposed in a data breach even if you never violate any ethical codes. 
Anyone can be a victim of cybercrime, and we all have information worth stealing. About 85% of data breaches are about money. Cyber criminals may access banking information or ransom systems, or they might simply gather user data to sell it to other online predators. On occasion, hackers will leak data for ethical reasons. The group that released the Ashley Madison records said they thought the website was exploiting its users and wasn't secure enough. It's ironic the group claimed to care about consumer privacy only to violate the consumer's privacy by publicly sharing their information. But the hackers did have a point. When companies don't do enough to protect their users' data, more often than not, it's the customers who suffer. In October 2013, cyber thieves hacked into Adobe, the software company behind Photoshop. They accessed millions of names and passwords from Adobe's user database. At the time, Adobe had encrypted their users' credentials, but they hadn't salted them. Meaning the individual characters in the usernames and passwords had been changed, but the system hadn't added any extra random characters for security. So the hackers could guess individuals' credentials by looking at the length of the encrypted passwords. The most vulnerable users were those who used popular passwords. If dozens, hundreds, or thousands all had the same hashed credentials, the cybercriminals could access all their accounts with one lucky guess. And even though cybersecurity experts have advised people to use unguessable passwords for years, the most popular choices as of 2016 included 12345, 123456, and password. Private individuals aren't the only ones with simple passwords. In 2004, nuclear security expert Dr. Bruce G. Blair published terrifying allegations. He said the United States nuclear missile silos' weapon systems were password protected, but the password wasn't particularly secure. Blair implied it was eight zeros in a row. Luckily, by the time Blair went public, the password had already been changed, and the Air Force has since denied Blair's claims. That story is still terrifying. But when it comes to personal accounts, we can't totally blame people for using simple credentials. Logins can be hard to remember, especially if you use a different one on every site. A 2020 study found the average Internet user has 100 different passwords. No wonder some of them are obvious. Certain cyber specialists predict online systems will phase out passwords someday. We may replace them with technology that can confirm your identity by looking at your location or by recognizing the device you've used to log in before. When it comes to mobile technology, we're already there. Many cell phones can be unlocked via a fingerprint scanner or facial recognition software. And you've likely encountered multi-factor authentication. That's the tool that sends you a text confirming your identity when you make a large purchase with your credit card or try to access sensitive information at work. But these practices aren't perfect. Many people can't afford smartphones, or they simply choose not to use them. 
Some companies are implementing AIs that can spot the difference between a legitimate login and a cyber attack. But until that technology becomes widespread, we'll be stuck with difficult-to-remember passcodes, data breaches, and social engineering. But coding and ciphers aren't all about hackers and crime prevention. Some people solve cryptography for fun. They see the world of encryption as part of a game. And it's a game we here on Unexplained Mysteries are playing, too. Coming up... Digital gaming and the real world collide. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Now back to the story. In the 1980s, a series of strange pamphlets appeared in coffee shops and other public spaces. Curious patrons browsing the brochure found wild claims about a top-secret laboratory in the tiny town of Ong's Hat, New Jersey. There, scientists and magicians supposedly collaborated to push the boundaries of a field called chaos studies. They were working to unlock the secrets of psychic powers, alchemy, and interdimensional travel. Many readers shrugged off the pamphlets as fake or deluded. But the claim seemed more valid when a game developer named Joseph Matheny gave an interview on a paranormal radio show. Just the very fact that I started finding out that there was a scientific group in this area at all um, was, was a big shock to me. Because at first, you know, I read it, I looked over the paperwork, and I thought, you know, this is really interesting. I think maybe there was a couple of physicists at Lawrence Livermore or something that were bored and wrote this up one night. Um, And then I looked more into it, and and the evidence started to come forward more and more and more. By the time Internet access became widespread in the 1990s, the mystery around Ong's hat was at a fever pitch. Some online posters even came forward claiming they were survivors of the facility's strange scientific experiments. Other users shared clues and theories on message boards, debating whether the narrative was true. In reality... It wasn't. Matheny and his friends had been experimenting with new forms of entertainment. They were trying to create an interactive story that felt real. It wouldn't be just another book or movie that you could pick up and passively consume. They called it Ong's Hat, and they wanted it to be a narrative that was also a game. Players would have to gather clues and piece them together on their own and different participants would have very different experiences, depending on which hints they managed to track down. Matheny and his colleagues essentially invented alternate reality games, or ARGs, 
interactive pieces of narrative media. To unlock the full story, users may have to decode a secret message, share theories on a message board, or locate physical clues in the real world. Think of ARGs as games you play in your day-to-day real life. And the world itself is the game board. Some competitions require players to answer incoming calls to payphones. Others involve fax messages, cell phone voicemails, and in-person meetups. In one game, a clue was saved on a flash drive, which was left in a public restroom for players to find. For another, competitors had to pick up cakes at specific bakeries and dig out physical clues that had been baked into the desserts. In 1998, one ARG webpage profiled three film students who'd vanished while producing a documentary project. It claimed search parties had discovered their abandoned gear and their footage, and authorities were still trying to determine what happened to them. The site cataloged the project and the evidence the students had gathered. It hosted message boards where cyber sleuths could share tips about the missing trio. A year later, the student's story made it to mainstream television. In July 1999, the Sci-Fi Channel ran a documentary on their disappearance. That same year, a feature film hit the theaters. Supposedly, it was edited together from the footage the missing filmmakers had shot. It was called The Blair Witch Project. Today, we know the film was and is a work of fiction as were the promotional website and the sci-fi documentary. But at the time, many viewers were fooled. The marketing was all designed to make the narrative look real. The actual filmmakers essentially invited the public to step into their fantastical world via the Internet. The Blair Witch Project reinvented the way people understood ARGs. The people who'd played Ong's hat did it for the fun of it. They wanted to know how the story ended and tie up dangling plot threads. The Blair Witch Project and other games that followed showed that ARGs were valuable as a marketing tool. In 2001, a game called The Beast launched to promote the upcoming feature film AI Artificial Intelligence. Three years later, several prominent gamers and reviewers received an odd package in the mail, a jar of honey and a URL, www.ilovebees.com. It was another viral marketing ARG, this time to promote Halo 2's release. Players who solved the puzzles the fastest won invitations to private screenings, posters, and other promotional swag. Many of these marketing ARGs included the same types of codes we discussed earlier. Substitution ciphers and Morse code both frequently come up in gameplay. But alternate reality games aren't all about obscure clues, and they don't all try to fool players into thinking they're real. In July 2016, Pokemon Go arrived in app stores, and over 100 million people played it in its first month. This game doesn't involve code-breaking or hidden messages, but it's still an ARG because you have to interact with the real world to play it. If you walk around with the app open, the screen will display your real surroundings as your camera picks them up. But occasionally, Pokemon will also appear, and you'll have the opportunity to fight and capture them. 
Odds are many players don't even realize they're playing an ARG each time they load the app. At the other extreme, some alternate reality games are baffling to the uninitiated. Even if you're enthusiastic about playing the game, you might find a clue and have no idea how to decipher it. For example, you'd have to combine several of the cryptography methods we've discussed this episode to make heads or tails of this clip. Some puzzles involve codes on top of codes. You might decipher one hint only to discover the solution is another puzzle. This makes it tricky to determine if an ARG is worth your time. Players have solved baffling ciphers, expended hours searching for clues, and have occasionally been encouraged to break the law, only to be rewarded with, say, advertising materials as the prize. But that doesn't mean ARGs are all frivolous. Some teachers have incorporated alternate reality games into the classroom to help students feel engaged. European schools have used them to help teach foreign languages. In some cases, they've been used as recruitment tools. In 2004, Google advertised an opening on a billboard. But the sign didn't include the job title or the name of the company. It didn't even mention anything about hiring. It only displayed a riddle that passersby had to solve to find a URL with another puzzle, which in turn held another clue and ultimately led to the job application. Private sector hiring managers aren't the only ones posting games online. According to rumors, unsuspecting people have been invited to join the UK Secret Service after solving an ARG. The NSA and U.S. Navy have also hired people using alternate reality games. But recruitment is only the tip of the iceberg, especially when government agencies are involved. The Internet has made it easy for them to do things they never could in the real world. Like compiling massive databases on who you chat with, where you shop, what you watch, and how often you leave your house. All with a single click of a button. It's frightening to think of a hacker stealing and compiling this information, but at least you have some recourse if a criminal steals your information. U.S. officials have written and passed policies that make their online surveillance totally legal. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer and never share your digital passwords with anyone. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Andrew Messer and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>